what belongs in a training contract? I'm about to send one off to a, a client, so I thought it would be a good idea today to share my thoughts on this. When we train people and demand money or compensation for the delivery of the training, we are in effect entering into an agreement. So you and I as training business owners have expectations and so does our client. A contract between us simply legally binds the parties to the agreement so that there is satisfaction on both sides that this agreement, whatever that might be, will be executed and, if not, which terms of redress are acceptable as a remedy. Now, this is not legal advice. I do emphasize before we go into today's episode that you need to consult an attorney or a solicitor for the specifics, the legal specifics of a training contract. So this cannot be construed in any way as legal advice. I'm simply addressing some key components worth highlighting from the perspective of a training business owner. This is episode 52 of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hi, welcome to the show. This is the podcast for training business owners. It's the podcast from trainingbusiness.com. And if you are a training business owner, maybe you've got your own training business, coaching business, you're a learning and development consultant, you basically work uh, for your keep, you earn a living from doing this, then this is the show for you. The premise or goal of this show, of every episode, every single Thursday, is to help you to start to grow and to scale your training business. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes. I'm the podcast host of this show. So this is your first time here. Welcome. And if you're a frequent listener to the episodes every single Thursday, I'd like to welcome you back. Now, today it's just you and I. And the reason is we're talking about something which concerns us both. You and I, as training business owners, um, are always at some point looking to bring on board new clients. Either we're extending the terms and conditions we have with existing clients, we're modifying them in some way, and therefore it's a matter of training contracts. So you and I need to protect both our training business and of course our clients' business because things don't always work out. Sometimes differences or disagreements arise, so we need to make provision for this and that's what today is all about. So we're going to look at five things today and these are things which just popped into my mind, well, more than just popped into my mind, to be honest. I've done some kind of thinking about this as to why and how I can make this relevant. But I've kind of drawn on the things which I think uh, are crucial. Uh, now, not all of the things I will address today make up um, a training contract in its entirety. I'm simply focusing on things which I think are important. And those are five things. The first one is ownership. The second one is delivery. The third one is payment. The fourth one is termination. And the fifth thing is language. So one more time. Ownership, delivery, payment, termination, and language. So let's dive in. The first one is ownership. What that means is we need to clarify who owns what. So we need to make it clear that anything which you or I, which is pre-designed, it's something that we've done, uh, we've previously designed, and we're bringing this to the 
client. We're bringing this to the table, if you will. It could be an off-the-shelf program. Uh, but whatever that is, it's your intellectual property, and it will remain yours. Those could be things like tools you've developed, subject matter expertise you've formulated into some kind of uh, learning content, a video, a program. It could be some kind of techniques which are your proprietary techniques. They could be inventions, and we'll talk specifically about inventions in the context of a contract in just a moment. Uh, they basically are things which have been designed prior to the engagement with the client. So naturally, they should remain yours. So you've got to stipulate how the things which pre-exist the training agreement, the contract, uh, are to be used. Who has access to that particular material or video or online program or something else? And for what purpose they can access that material, that content, that intellectual property, and the duration of access to that particular thing, that content, that program. Also, what people cannot do with your content, with that material that you own. For example, they can't distribute it without your permission. They can't copy it. They can't pass it off as their own. They can't photocopy it in the case of printed material, and they certainly can't rebrand it. Now, if the client asks you for customization of something which you're offering them, uh, and maybe you charge for that, you'd want to make charges clear in advance through the contract. And for that purpose, um, if there's a customized version of something you've developed and they're paying for that version, usually that becomes their intellectual property, or at least that's the case in my experience. Now, you may not be willing to customize your products any further, in which case you might want to make this clear. I know this has been something controversial in my experience when I, for example, as a learning and development manager, have seen heated discussions in the past where company uh, X was hired to develop content and they were paid for that, but then they stipulated that that material now belonged to them. It actually didn't uh, because it was produced in the context of paid work for a, a company and that company, uh, it was legally proven, said it's actually ours. So that's something you might want to clarify depending on the jurisdiction uh, from which you're listening to this today. Because people naturally assume that once they have paid for a product to be customized, to have something done to it, it's now theirs. And they might assume they can do what they want uh, with it now that they've bought it. But I've seen this happen many times. So you might want to clarify uh, exactly what people cannot do. And particularly if they've customized something, are they allowed to? And under what circumstances can they do that? It can be very sticky, but it's very important to get this stuff ironed out before you engage. Now, what happens in the course of a training contract, delivery of that contract, if someone creates something new? For example, you're the training consultant or learning and development consultant or coach, or maybe you've a team of trainers or people representing your training business, and maybe someone, one of them, uh, creates something, a new technique, a new concept, a new model in the course of that paid engagement with the client. Now, typically, the law will say, as far as I know, that these are referred to as inventions. And very often, the training contract may indicate that you, as a training consultant, or your trainers have to disclose this invention to the client and agree that these are now the property of the client. So that's something you might include, or a legal attorney, a solicitor may advise you to include, or the client, in fact, may include this if they send you a contract rather than you making your own, that it's clarified exactly who owns something if that uh, concept, technique, product, service uh, evolves 
and is developed in the course of a paid engagement with a client. I've seen this many times. And again, a legal expert will advise you on the necessity or how to formulate this information if it's to be included in a contract. So once again, in ownership, who owns what prior to engagement? Uh, can customization be made? If so, under what circumstances and who owns that? And thirdly, of course, naturally anything in the course of an engagement um, which could emerge in the execution of a contract, very often that's deemed as an invention, and very often it belongs to the company where that invention takes place. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, there have been well-known cases where, let's say, someone invents something in the laboratory, and although they invented that, they're doing so in the employment of Company X. And Company X naturally claims that invention as theirs because they've paid the person to do the work and it just so happens that that invention emerged in the execution of that work. Again, I'm not an expert, but it's something you might want to think about. And that's the whole idea of today is to give you things to think about. The next thing is delivery. So delivery of what? Well, you need some kind of clear definition of your training services, of your consulting services, of your coaching services. You may not offer all of these. You may offer two. You, in fact, may offer all three. But people may assume when you refer to training services that you mean X when, in fact, you mean Y. So a good idea is to perhaps uh, create a separate appendix. You could call it an exhibit something, exhibit A or exhibit B, which is a separate document and clarifies exactly what your company provides in terms of training services, consulting, coaching, etc. And there are different implications for each of those. But that's not something you'll always find in the middle of a contract, but the contract may make reference to what those definitions are, and that definition is often contained in a separate document. Something else in terms of delivery to consider is the venue where delivery takes place. So, for example, uh, coaching may be on-site, but does that mean at the client site, or does it mean on your premises? And that's a tricky one. The client may assume you will travel, but they may not be willing to absorb expenses, um, which are, shall we say, drawn up or incurred. In, in that travel. So that's something you might want to clarify. The client may assume that their team will come to you. You may have to provide a venue. Is the venue suitable? Do you have one? Have you public liability insurance in the case of accidents or damage? So that's an important consideration to clarify in terms of where the delivery will take place. Your, your place or their place. Uh, it may be remote, which is quite frequent these days. Maybe you're providing your coaching or training services via webinar. Um, is there suitable technology? Who covers the cost of that technology? Something like uh, Zoom, I believe, to a certain point uh, is free. Uh, certain features are not free unless you are willing to pay for them. But some platforms are very expensive to run and they may not do everything which the client expects. For example, do people have access to recording after delivery? Is that something stipulated in the contract? Can people who are scheduled to attend one of your remote sessions, can they reschedule if they miss a session? Something else to be stipulated in the delivery part of the contract is the frequency of delivery. Is it once a week? Is it once a quarter? Um, it's a very good idea to build a retainer fee 
if you can, into your training proposal. Um, and that's something you want to clarify perhaps prior to the contract because this generates recurring revenue for your training business. For example, there might be uh, some kind of session every 30, 60 or 90 days following some kind of coaching session. And coaching is a prime example of the retainer model. So in some instances, the training which you deliver could be just a one-off but, you know, that might not suit your revenue stream. You might want to think of ways, which I think I mentioned on a previous episode, to kind of extend the value where you've some excuse to re-engage at points in the future. And coaching, again, is a very simple example of this, where coaches uh, build into the contract some kind of retainer where they will um, contact the coachee or the, the client at some point again in the future in order to keep that coaching relationship going. So that's something you might want to outline carefully in the delivery section of your contract. So delivery explains what people are going to get for their money and how and when and where it will be delivered to them. Okay, the next thing is payment. And payment is very important because we all want to get paid. We're training business owners. And things which clarify or ought to be clarified here, uh, first of all, is when is payment to be made? So when is it due? Several training businesses I'm familiar with require a deposit before training or coaching services commence. It could be 30%, 40%, 50%, sometimes more. Some businesses, I know this for a fact, it surprised me, it stuck in my mind, require full payment in advance of the training or coaching. And that can be a tricky one because Naturally enough, many clients are not happy to do this unless you can provide a clear guarantee what will happen in case delivery does not proceed. And on the other hand, some clients of yours, of mine, uh, offer terms of payment uh, between 30, 60, 90, or in extreme cases, 120 days. And it may not suit you. I know some companies can do this because they're huge and it's a buyer's market. Um, very often, uh, large corporations are, you know, quite fixed in terms of the, the the payment terms which they offer, and sometimes they're not in your favor. Personally, I expect payment in thirty days, or I will not dance. I will not engage with businesses that will not pay me within thirty days. I think that's reasonable. On the other hand, you might think, well, you know what? I can live with 60 days. That's a personal view. Uh, you might want to check with your accountant if your finances can sustain this. Remember, cash flow is the lifeblood of your training business. So $20,000 is no good to you until it's in your bank account. Another thing to keep in mind is expenses when it comes to the payment section of your contract. Your contract may stipulate that expenses, which could be defined in a separate exhibit or appendix or document, that those expenses are to be reimbursed within X number of days. And generally speaking, expenses should be reimbursed long before you get full payment for the delivery of services. So it could be 15 days, 10 days, 20 days. Those are flights and accommodation and meals and taxi uh, fares you've paid for. So invariably, that's a large chunk of money you've given out, you've spent. Uh, so it's logical to expect that back into your system as soon as possible. So you may include a paragraph stipulating that the client has to pay um, those expenses within a defined period. Now, another thing to keep in mind in the payment section of a contract could be something 
which could be termed interest. And this could be a paragraph where you stipulate that the client has to pay interest upon and in addition to any unmet or overdue payments at a particular rate. For example, let's say that um, let's say that you have delivered training or coaching or something which involves you going and spending time and money. And for some reason, the client has not yet paid you back or has not yet uh, done their part of the contract, which involves remunerating you for the fees which they've agreed to. They have not yet paid you for what you've done, the work you've done, okay? So what some training providers do is they put a paragraph in there in the payment section which stipulates that the client is effectively punished, if, if that's not too harsh a word, by agreeing to pay interest upon any outstanding payments. And this is a kind of a stick, but it does work because it makes someone sit up and think, if I don't actually pay for the work done, as long as it's met terms and conditions, um, then I'm going to be paying out more. So this could be, let's say, 1.5% uh, of the prime rate of a particular bank, a published uh, rate. And again, this is something a client or an accountant could clarify and help you with, that this uh, interest rate of 1.5% then is used to compound the overdue principal and and it accru- accuse or accrues each month. I think that's the word. It accrues and accumulates in each month. So very soon it becomes an outstanding payment of 1.5% on top of 1.5% and so on. And it gets very expensive. So it encourages people to pay up. And if this is uh, ironed out or agreed to before the training contract and the training uh, takes place, um, I think you might find that people take your payment requests more seriously. So there's no point wondering what could have been if you don't do this beforehand, okay? The the, the horse has bolted, as we say. This is something you want to put in, so it really makes people think, I need to be serious about paying for work done. I can't mess someone around and make excuses. And it will save you costs in the long term, because the last thing you want to do is to have to hire the services of a company that provide things called factoring in my part of the world, where effectively you are chasing bad debt. Okay? Not a good idea. Now, let's come to the kind of unpleasant stuff. What if the client cancels three days, two days, one week before the training contract is due to start? This has happened to me on a couple of occasions. Let's say your flights have been booked, your hotel's been booked. You've booked the venue, uh, booked coffee, booked meals, if that's relevant. And you or your trainers have committed and foregone other training work. You can't be in two places at once. So you've basically uh, tied your your business to this particular contract going ahead. But somehow, for some reason, the client now says, sorry, it doesn't suit me. I can't do this. So what if the client cancels before that training has started? Well, guess what? Your contract needs to make some kind of provision for this. It could be that you say, right, um, if that is the case, this is what we expect. And that's the next point. This is the point we come to now, what we call clar- uh, termination, uh, termination clause in your contract. And if you don't do this, you could literally lose thousands. You could deliver work or have work signed up. You could have things printed and uh, everything booked, as I've said. But somehow, for some reason, it's not going to go ahead. So what happens? You're left holding the baby. So you now need to know, can I actually uh, have any redress 
to ensure I am remunerated for expenses incurred and how can I get the money or some part of the money which we agreed with the client. So the termination clause is the part where we make it clear under which circumstances termination is acceptable and what the remedy is. So the term part of termination tells the client how long an agreement is enforced. So naturally, some kind of agreements have a, a shelf life. They, they come to the end of a particular time where, let's say, you deliver training, but that's a once-off. So therefore, the agreement starts on a particular date, the contract ends on a particular date. Unless, of course, you have a retainer in place, in which case the term is as long as the services are provided in accordance with the contract or training agreement. So what else is important in the termination section? A discretionary termination might point out that either side may cancel within X days without any penalty or compensation payable. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Sometimes, for whatever reason, you can't make it. Uh, You're ill, touch wood, something happens, and you are prevented from uh, delivering your side of the bargain. So discretionary termination provides for the fact that either side may, within a particular acceptable time frame and under particular circumstances, agree to walk away without any penalty or compensation payable from either to the other. Something else which is useful in the termination contract section is what's called breach. And this may be where termination is required when one or either side or both breaks specific conditions. For example, uh, the client does not release people to the training program on the days they've agreed to do so. Uh, or the client decides not to proceed for some reason and fails to provide some acceptable alternative or acceptable solution. And that often is what happens in a lot of kind of sticky situations where someone basically breaks their word or they don't comply with the terms of the agreement. So that's that's what breach addresses, how that's to be dealt with, what breach what constitutes breach and the acceptable remedies under the law of your jurisdiction. I must sound to some of you like I'm trying to be a lawyer today. I'm not, but I'm talking to you as a training business owner because I've had to look at these things myself. And very often, uh, each company you deal with will have their own version of these. So it's a good idea to familiarize yourself with the language of contracts no more than you would not want to Uh, have accounts and not be able to understand them. So I'm not saying you have to become a lawyer here, but to be familiar with the the basic building blocks of a training contract, the sections, the language, and of course the implications. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we have what's called insolvency. And in recession times or times of recession, this can be quite useful. And unfortunately, it's necessary where a client uh, is declared bankrupt or insolvent. It does happen. It has happened to me just once, but that's enough to, well, kind of make you resolve never to allow this to happen to you again. It can be deadly to your cash flow if you're dependent on a payment sometime in the future and a business closes. The owner sells the business, transfers it to another company, another holding company, and all of a sudden there's no one going to pay you. So this part, uh, insolvency, makes it clear that the agreement is immediately terminated under certain circumstances. For example, someone declares bankruptcy or is deemed insolvent and that money outstanding must be settled within X days. For example, five days, 10 days, rather than the normal 30, 60, 90 or plus days. 
That makes sense. Okay, so, so far I think you've a flavor for the kinds of things which pop up or ought to pop up or be included in a training contract. And when I say contract, I literally mean a legal document which needs to be verified, uh, often produced by someone who is legally uh, qualified to do so. But when it comes to the language, something to be kept in mind is my final point today, which is language. And agreements are made to be read. So what we need really here in our training contract and the agreement and proposal is clear, direct, unambiguous language. So it needs to be drafted by a professional, an attorney, a solicitor, but it should not read like a 20-page life insurance policy. You know what I mean? If we have documents which are so unwieldy and complex, number one, um, they're kind of difficult to, to modify and to update, but more importantly, they kind of come across as very, yeah, very inflexible. And we as consultants, as, as learning and development professionals, as training business owners, should be proponents of clear, articulate communication. It's what many of us do, and it's what we train others to do. So let's keep that in mind. Uh, the language, the clarity of the document basically has our name on it. So we don't want to produce something which reads like that life insurance policy I mentioned. It's got to be something accessible and clear, but we just can't write this as if we're writing, we're designing a training module. It must be legally effective and legally effective in the jurisdiction in which you are operating and providing the service to that client. So your attorney may have expertise creating contracts for consulting and training service providers, just like you and I, or they may not in which case it might be better that they take some direction from you as to what you want to include. And you might say to them, I need this contract to do this, this, and this. So again, they may not have expertise in that particular area, but they could take direction from you. But ultimately, that contract has got to be legally watertight, and therefore it requires someone who has got that expertise. Now, I mentioned language when I talked about language just now. And something to keep in mind is that you might want... Um, to keep separate documentation for things like definitions. So very often, the training agreement, the proposal, uh, the structure, the documentation is not just the contract. It's more than that. So you might want to structure your training program in a separate document. Uh, you know, the schedule of training engagements or coaching engagements could be provided in a separate document. The contract usually is a separate document in and of itself. So you might write the proposal yourself and the resulting agreement with reference to someone legal who could cast their eye about that. But those are usually not written by legal people, but they're checked off by them. But the training contract itself, a contract in law, is something I don't think any of us can take a risk with uh, by doing it ourselves. Now, what I've found in the past is that it's a good idea to walk your client through the documents which you exchange with them, as well as the contract early on. So um, legal people with the best of intentions sometimes take something simple and make it into something adversarial and complex. It sounds almost frightening to read. So it's best early on to, you know, have a kind of a, a loose enough conversation with a client so that you agree on what kind of information should be in the contract and draw something up accordingly. Now, that not, might not be possible, but it's something you might want to think of doing because if we go straight to uh, legal people, very often what happens is that document becomes difficult for you to read and understand and to explain. 
And what happens is then it becomes a dialogue between the legal parties of both sides, which of course drives costs up. So it's a good idea to be clear in advance of a contract and to walk yourself, have your attorney or solicitor walk you through that contract and of course then walk your client through that contract to avoid misunderstanding. But what I strongly advise against is taking any old contract from the internet, doctoring it on your computer and sending that out. Because one, that uh, contract which you've taken from the internet, which is where many people get things these days, may be full of errors which will not stand up in court in the case of a dispute. That's reason number one. Reason number two, taking someone's contract and plagiarizing it is in itself theft of intellectual property. Do you really want to pick a fight with a lawyer over their intellectual property? I don't think so. And reason number three is the document which you use may be based on the laws of a different jurisdiction and offer you no basis for protection, which means that it's as useful as an inflatable dartboard or a solar-powered torch or a bicycle with square wheels. You get the idea. It's useless. So I'd rather have some kind of protection than take a risk on something I, inverted commas, found somewhere online. Now, speaking of online, what you can do is use an online service such as Hello Bonsai. I'll give you the the links to these in the show notes of today's episode. But basically, it's the word hello, H-E-L-L-O, and the word bonsai. Think of the plant, the Japanese plant, B-O-N-S-A-I dot com. And that's a site where you can use a template system to generate contracts for your specific requirements. Now, um, I have not used the service, so I cannot and will not vouch for this, but um, I will never espouse the virtues of something that I or anyone on my team has not used, but there are allegedly many development, learning and development consultants using this service. So that's hellobonsai.com. It claims over 100,000 consultants use this service. It's best to investigate this yourself, of course, and decide for yourself in conjunction with legal advice whether this is for you. Now, uh, seemingly, because I'm not used to this system, I'm saying seemingly, uh, the system appears to notify you. This is bonsai.com, hello bonsai.com. It appears to notify you when recipients review your contract and if and when they sign that contract electronically. Now, I quite like the sound of that because something else I use, DocuSign, something else I use, does that. It, it tells me when someone opens something and tracks any changes made. And then, it, of course, allows both uh, me, allows me and the client to sign that document electronically. So the system also, this is hellobonsai.com, also appears to offer functionality to generate invoices automatically. So there there appear to be a whole bunch of things that the service is or, or allows you to do, and it saves messing around with snail mail. What I've done a lot of the time, I'm sure you have too, is we've printed out contracts, signed them, and sent them off by recorded post. And of course, there are all kinds of delays and risks inherent in doing that. So something you might want to seriously look into is the idea of electronic contracts. DocuSign, HelloBonsai.com are just two of them. I'll come to a third one in the moment. But I am told that these do stand up in the courts of law in several jurisdictions. So that's something I think is the future. In fact, it's 
possibly the present. And it's something I've begun to do, which is to use something like DocuSign to create contracts and have someone sign that instantly rather than wait a couple of days or weeks before, you know, someone's intentions run out and they don't go ahead with what they've promised. It does happen. So time is crucial here. You have an agreement, execute that agreement, get it signed. And something like these services ensures it's done promptly and informs you when that's done. Now, there are other features, including expense tracking and uh, proposal creation, which services like Hello Bonsai offer. And as I'm speaking right now, in September 2019, the prices for the service, they're not obvious, but I did some digging around. They appear to be $16 per month, that's US, and $24 per month. And obviously, there's a difference in the services provided at those price points. Something else you might like. I've not yet used either, but it's from Fiverr, which is the international gig site where you and I can find designers, coders, copywriters, etc. Um, it's something from them. It's called www.and, the word and.co. Literally, www.and.co from a company you may have heard of called Fiverr. And this, again, provides a range of online services which you can avail of, including proposal creation, contract building, expense tracking, time tracking, and, of course, invoicing and payments. And, I believe, some kind of reports around things like payments and time tracking and so on. Again, I'm not used this, but I do know of several trainers who use this and recommend this. It's up to you to research all of these and to make up your own mind. As I'm speaking again in September 2019, at the time of recording, there is both a free plan and an $18 plan. And naturally enough, there are limitations on the free plan. So you might want to look into those and consider that. So there are two out-of-the-box systems. Those are two out-of-the-box systems online where they might suit your needs, they might not suit your needs, but they are aimed at solo or solo, you know, trainers or contract uh, coaches, uh, consultants, or small businesses, small training businesses. Um, And the language and the legal system they're based on, those templates, may or may not suit your needs. So you might want to do some diligence into whether those services I mentioned, DocuSign and .co and HelloBonsai.com, uh, are of interest and relevant to you. And again, I will provide those links in the show notes to today's episode in case you didn't get that. Okay, so everything I've mentioned so far is on the basis that you are drafting your contracts yourself or someone's doing it for you. In other words, they're coming from you and going to your client. But you may be presented with a document from the legal representative or legal department of a client in which case you need to review this before you sign this. And I strongly urge you to review anything that comes to you through the post in legal language with your attorney. Many corporates, corporate businesses, have in-house procurement teams, uh, legal people in-house who write sometimes verbose, complex contracts. So you might need help deciphering these. And don't be afraid to negotiate. If you're not happy with, if you're not happy with something in a contract, or you don't understand that thing, you first of all clarify. And if you don't agree with it, don't sign it. Okay. Uh, Don't be afraid to negotiate. Go back to the client and say, happy with this, 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 but this is a sticking point. Can we uh, negotiate this or can we agree this? If I do this, could you do this? 
Okay, so we talked about negotiation principles in a separate episode of the Training Business Podcast. We, we may well come back to it in the future, and I think it's something I'd like to do anyway. So have I left anything out today? Yes, absolutely. Loads of stuff. There are other sections which belong in a training contract. For example, confidentiality, warranty, limitations of liability, indemnification. Now, these are not my area of expertise, and this is where you definitely want to consult legal specialists in your jurisdiction for this and everything else I've mentioned today in terms of training business contracts, because I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a solicitor, I'm not an attorney. I'm often confused as to the difference between those three terms. But, you know, you and I, we're, we're focused on delivering training and coaching to our clients, right? So these are just my personal observations. Uh, this is between us training business owner to training business owner. Okay. So that was episode 52 of the training business podcast. I'd love you to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. A couple of people did that for me last week and thank you. You know who you are. My goal is to make this the best show for training business owners on the internet, people like you and I around the world. You can check out the podcast every single Thursday on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, and I believe also, someone told me recently, it's on Google uh, Google Podcasts. So thank you to Sam for editing today's episode and every episode of the podcast. Without Sam, you wouldn't have anything to listen to every single week. And thank you to James for his creation of all the graphics uh, that go into making the podcast attractive visually and social media, the kinds of graphics and things I will be putting out um, because I've been a bit of a slow coach or laggard to date when it comes to putting things on social media. I'm just not a social media person, but I need to be. And of course, many of you will expect to find some content on your favorite social media channels. So this is, of course, something that I have to address and people like James can help me with that. So thank you again to you for your time this week. There are many fine podcasts out there on the internet or the interweb. And I'm grateful to you for listening to this episode this week. This is your host, Mark Garrett Hayes, signing off and looking forward to your company again in next week's episode, episode 53 on Thursday. Have a great training business week. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.